Uh, we are continuing on in our, I don't know if I have this yet, but uh, in our study of the Gospel of John, um, we are this morning in going to be reading from John chapter 7, and uh, one of the things, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult when you jump around a little bit, uh, sometimes we have to kind of take a uh, uh, you know, a bigger picture view of, uh, of the story and, and of uh, Scripture and what we're doing. Um, but today what I, what I really want to do is to increase your confidence in Scripture and to know that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Um, that's what we are looking at this morning as we look at John chapter 7. I am going to be reading from uh, John chapter 7 beginning in verse 14, and then I am going to read through to verse 39, from John 7, 14, through to verse 39. <clears throat> About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? When? Has he never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is God's word. God, I pray that you would today open up your word to us, that we might see you and understand you, that we would see your great love for us, your great plan unfolding not just throughout this gospel or all the gospels or even the life and ministry of Jesus, but all of human history unfolding in a way that reveals who you are and your love for us and your plan to redeem us to yourself through your promised Messiah, that we would see Jesus in all of it, that we would glorify you, and that, God, we would believe in you. We pray it all in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. (coughs) Next week, in 10 days from now, in fact, is Valentine's Day. This is a little friendly reminder in case uh, you're not prepared yet. Um, And I I was thinking back to uh, a Valentine's Day, the very first Valentine's Day after Cossie was born. uh, My parents said to us, we're going to watch Cossie. You guys go out to eat wherever you, you know, take take your wife out, out, son. And I said, absolutely. And I did, and I took advantage. I was like, I know just the place. And I took my pregnant wife on Valentine's Day to McDonald's. And I read her a children's book. That is a true story. I really did do that. But there's another half of that story. The other half of that story is that back when we were dating, when we were students at the Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, We were not allowed to be in one another's dorms. Uh, You know, men and women couldn't interact in that way alone, because if you're alone long enough, that could lead to dancing. So, you know. Um, But, and as it got late enough or cold enough, often we needed some place that we wanted to hang out. And frequently we would go to the great big McDonald's in downtown Chicago, and we would sit there for hours eating cheap, really bad for you, awful food, and we would read stories to each other like the Chronicles of Narnia. And so that's what I did for Valentine's Day. I took my wife to McDonald's, and we read from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, what we were doing in that was to remember this time when, you know, we didn't have much, when we were dirt poor, but we had each other, and we loved it, and it was great, And I think that there is something in that. There is something in remembering what life was like before and remembering how God has been faithful. And we went home and we gazed adoringly at our sleeping son and we thought about all the ways that God has protected us and cared for us and how he has brought us through. I think that there is something in that same sentiment, this same idea of remembering how far we've come, and recognizing God's faithfulness 
that is at the heart of this festival, Sukkot. Now, as we start reading the first sentence that I read in John 14 about the middle of the feast, makes you go, hang on, what feast? What are we talking about? What feast do we mean here? And if we go all the way back to verse 2, if you jump ahead, you see the feast of booths, which I'm realizing I have to articulate really well. I had a conversation with Mike, and I said, the feast of booths, and he went, the feast of what? Booths, T-H, okay? Uh, that's, there's another festival. No, no anyway. Uh, the feast of booths, or maybe your version says the feast of tabernacles. Uh, in in uh, Jewish tradition and in Hebrew, this is called Sukkot. It is named for the tent, the sort of temporary dwelling that is set up. And the point of this festival was to remember a time when God provided, before the people had a more permanent dwelling place. And this is most of what I want to talk about this morning, is the kind of context surrounding this feast. Mostly because this covers the next several chapters. The reading this week is in two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8. This is the longest uh, uh, portion of scripture that we have throughout the reading uh, of the Gospel of John. Um, but then even into uh, next week's reading as well, we're still kind of during and immediately after this Feast of Booths. And I think it's important to understand the context so that we have in our minds what the people here at the feast had in their minds, thinking about a lot of the same things and why it sets up just how scandalous Jesus' teaching really is. And so what is Sukkot? First of all, Sukkot is one of the, the most important festivals. In Leviticus chapter 23, Moses is going through all of the feasts and festivals that the people of Israel need to remember and need to observe. He talks about Passover, he talks about Rosh Hashanah, he talks about a Day of Atonement, and he talks about this Feast of Booths. In verse 34, we see, speak to the people of Israel, saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And you can look over, there's, you know, maybe 10 to 15 verses there in Leviticus chapter 23 that outline how the people are meant to observe this feast that lasts for seven or eight days, depending on whether or not you're in Israel or a part of the diaspora. But think of it as lasting about one week. And it's a big deal. This is a big, big deal for the people of Israel. And in fact, this is one of the, the important holidays that is still celebrated today. This picture was taken just a few years ago in New Hampshire, where for seven days, the people who now have a permanent place to dwell, they go back to living like they did before they had someplace permanent. They go back and remember what it was like living in something temporary. And even now today, Jews that, that recognize this holiday, they spend a week, they build this Sukkot, this, this tent, 
And that's where they sometimes sleep, that's where they gather and they have fellowship, that's where they eat their meals. And it's meant to be a reminder of when they were wandering in the desert before they had gotten this land God had promised to them. And the other thing that's interesting about this feast is that it takes precedence over the Sabbath. You'll notice that because it happens on a calendar day, the 15th day of the seventh month, it could land on a different day of the week. It's like New Year's or Christmas where, you know, that might land on a different day each year. And when that happens to land certain days of it on the Sabbath, there are rituals that take place that ordinarily you wouldn't do on the Sabbath. But because it's the feast, that takes priority. That supersedes you know, the, the sort of ritual of the Sabbath. In fact, that's kind of what, Mo, what uh, Jesus is talking about with the law of Moses and circumcision. Because like, um, you know, like other uh, symbols of God's covenant promises, this is important to recognize. And so just like you would circumcise someone on the Sabbath, because if that's the eighth day, that's the eighth day, in the same way, we're going to recognize and do the sort of traditions of Sukkot, whether it's the Sabbath or not. And that is all prescribed in the, in the rabbinic literature of the people and in the ways that they would recognize and celebrate Sukkot. It's a reminder of God providing for the people while they were wandering around in the desert. While they were wandering, sometimes it felt like aimlessly longing for, anxiously awaiting this land, this permanent place in which to dwell that God had promised them, it was a reminder that even during those 40 years, God provided over and over and over again everything that they needed. God sustained them through that time. It would be like um, maybe some of you have had this experience and you uh, early on, you lived in this tiny little apartment and you were saving up to buy a house and then you bought that house. And some of you are older and your kids are grown and your family, it would be like having the house now and still once a year renting out that tiny little apartment and getting the whole family to come back and live there and sleep there and eat your meals there and do fellowship there together because you're going, hey, remember what this was like? Stop it, move, give me more space. We don't have more space. You know, It was kind of like that. Even though you now have a permanent place to dwell that God has provided just like he promised, I want you for once a year to remember what it was like when you were wandering around and still God took care of you because he is who he says he is and he will do as he promised he would. And there are these symbols of God's provision throughout. You can kind of see on this picture, maybe not very well, but there's all sorts of roughage and, and foliage that people have thrown on on the, on the, on the tent what happens is there are these, what they call the four species that become central in the celebration of Sukkot. If you look over Leviticus 23 in that passage, you can kind of see, um, and, and what it is is they call them the four species. It's three branches. It's a branch from a willow tree and a date frond 
and a myrtle tree, as well as a, a fruit, the fruit of the citron tree, which is called um, an etrog, uh, which is, I don't know, it, it's, it's like a lemon. It's not technically a lemon, but it's, it's a lemon, all right? <laughs> and the unique thing about the four species is that they are found in unique places all around Israel. There is no one place where you can find all four of these. It's this kind of reminder of saying, go throughout all of the land. Go to the farthest reaches, the four corners of the land that I have provided, and let me remind you of my provision for you with these branch, leafy branches and this fruit. And that's involved in, in their traditions around Sukkot where they would have this daily thing where they're singing praises to God and they have this little processional through Jerusalem and they would wave these branches and they would remind themselves, God has given us this land and God has provided for us just like he promised he would. Another key component of Sukkot is that you're awaiting the Messiah. Now, in the same way that God promises the people of Israel that they will have this land to inhabit and to dwell and to take, and then God provides that land, in the same way God promises a Messiah. God promises that he would send a rescuer to redeem his people to himself. That is the story of the Old Testament, of God promising this. And so there is something about reminding yourselves, hey, while God had promised this thing and while we were waiting for that promise, God provided and God took care of us. In the same way, God has promised a Messiah will come and so we are trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he promised he would. In fact, um, if you look at the book of Zechariah, in Zechariah, the very last chapter in chapter 14, Zechariah is talking about this time when the Messiah will come. The day of the Lord, he calls it. And there are other, um, other uh, prophets that talk about this as well. I think about Joel and Amos, uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah. They, they referred to this time when the Messiah would come, this day of the Lord. And a lot of what Zechariah talks about on this day of the Lord is a celebration of the Feast of Booths. If you look at verse 16 of Zechariah 14, it says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. When they came back from exile and when they laid the foundation for the new temple and they were celebrating, it was right at the time when they would have this feast, Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. And a central part of this is reminding themselves, hey, God promised he would provide and he did. God has promised a Messiah. Let's remind one another of that promise and be faithful in that. We can take that to the bank. We trust that God will provide just like he always has for our ancestors. And that is really kind of central to Sukkot. Sukkot was there to remind that just like God provided their ancestors for their ancestors while wandering in the desert, God is still faithful to us. 
And while they were there in Jesus' time awaiting for the Messiah, that was a central part of celebrating Sukkot, of reminding each other and God's promise to Messiah. The Messiah is coming. And that's kind of why Jesus thought, you know, now seems like a good time to stand up and start teaching. Because Jesus understood this principle that all of Scripture points to him. All of Scripture points to Jesus. That's when Jesus is standing up and saying, hey, since we're talking about the Messiah, I might as well get up and and start teaching about who this Messiah is. And that's why, you you know, you can see, like, look at verse verse 26 in John chapter 7, where they say, "And and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And this whole section is them kind of speculating, so is he the Christ? Is he not the Christ? Because this is what is on their minds. This is kind of, uh, you know, what this festival is about. It's what they've all been thinking about as they celebrate Sukkot, the promise of the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. And as Jesus is standing up and saying, yeah, it's me, everyone's going, man, maybe it is. Can it be? Should we? Ah, and it's really making them think. There's, um, there's another important element of Sukkot, and it's this, this discussion of water. And a big part of the narrative in wandering in the desert, which is what the people are remembering from Sukkot, is this issue of water. Frequently, at least three or four times in the narrative of them wandering around in the desert with Moses, is the people going, we don't have enough water. We need water. And there's a time when they come and there's bitter water and Moses, you know, he prays and he throws some stuff and the water is made sweet and potable. And there's another time. um, In fact, I want to read this for you in Exodus chapter 17. If you have your Bible in front of you and you're uh, adept enough at flipping back and forth, you can go there to Exodus chapter 17. And this is one that we've talked about before, even as we were studying through the book of Hebrews. And in Exodus chapter 17, they've been wandering for a little bit, and the people are thirsty. So I'll pick up here in verse (coughs) 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Zin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test God? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the the people grumbled against Moses. I don't know if that sounds familiar, all the people grumbling about the... Okay? Grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. I don't know if that sounds familiar to what we're reading in John chapter 7. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people 
will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrying of the people of the Lord, uh, of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, there's, uh, there's so much here that this is the story that the people are remembering while Jesus is teaching this in John chapter 7. And you, in the same way that the people are going, is, is the Christ among us or not? And it's like, this is the same question that their ancestors were asking in the desert. Is the Lord among us or not? And they're talking about water. And in fact, uh, a central part of Sukkot was when they would, um, they would, they would take water from the well at Siloam and come and pour it out on the temple. And water was this symbolic thing. And in the same way that the people needed water to live, they, they were saying, we're so thirsty, we need water or we're going to die. God providing this water from a rock becomes this, this symbol. It becomes this illustration of God's provision. And over and over and over again throughout Scripture, not only is God described as this rock, but also we see water as this life-giving thing. We see water as God's sustaining power. God giving his people sustaining water, living water so that they could drink. Let me give you just three examples from the book of Isaiah. From chapter 12, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. Spiritual life is kind of equated with life we get from water. Chapter 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God promising, I am going to provide this living water, this sustaining water in the same way that I provided literal water from the rock at Meribah and Massah for your ancestors wandering in the desert. Last one from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. God is providing this water because it is the source of life. It is what sustains us. And he says it's so much more than just the, the wet stuff. Like, it is so much more than that. I am giving you life. And in fact, that same chapter from Zechariah that we read earlier about the Feast of Booths, just a few verses ahead of that, it's talking about this day when the Messiah will come, and what is it that he's going to provide? Verse 8, on that day, the day of the Lord, the day that the Messiah comes, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, the Dead Sea, and half of them to the Western Sea, the Mediterranean. He's saying, on this day when the Messiah is here, we are going to have not just water, but living water. That's what it's going to be like. That's the kind of spiritual nourishment and life that we're going to get from God himself on that day when the Messiah comes. And this is what they're celebrating all throughout uh, Sukkot. And that, that, um, 
that ritual, every single day they would do that. They would draw water from the pool of Siloam, from this, from this well, and they would take it up to the temple, and they would pour it out as this sign of expectation that someday they won't need this water. Someday the Messiah will come and offer living water. In fact, this was such an important... There's a... This one's free, okay? Uh, but... <laughs> In the, in the Talmud, there's this story, there's this, uh, you know, it's rabbinic uh, scholarship and instruction and, and, and like commentary on what Sukkot is. And there's this story where they say, and remember to do the water every single day. There was this rabbi once who did not do that, who said, you know what, we don't need to do this. This part isn't actually in Leviticus. I don't think we should draw the water, which really angered the people there. And you really, really do not want to anger your congregation when most of them are holding lemons. So, so what they do is they're so frustrated, they pelted him with lemons until he relented. He was like, all right, fine, fine, do the water thing. And so in the Talmud, there's this part where the rabbi is saying, hey, you don't want to be like Rabbi Ben Yehuda or whatever. You know, like, make sure you do the water, okay? Um, so that, that's how important it is that they do this thing, pouring out the water, remembering that the Messiah is coming. Okay, all of that in your mind, all of that is what they have been doing for seven days throughout Sukkot. And then, what does Jesus do? Back to John 7, jump to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up, and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the, scriptures as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is standing up and he is saying, that Messiah that you've longed for, that one who would come and give you living water where you can drink and thirst no more, just like he told the woman at the well in Samaria, it's me, I am here. You want living water? Come, drink, thirst no more, everyone. Imagine what a stir this is causing. When Jesus stands up and he says, oh, by the way, that Messiah you're all waiting for, I'm right here, guys. This whole festival, longing for a Messiah, knowing God will provide one because he provided for our ancestors before, ta-da, it's fulfilled. I mean, it's incredible. The gall, the temerity that this takes. Unless, of course, you really are the son of God. And it really is true. And this really is the only way that we can be made right with our creator, Father God, is through drinking of this living water that only Jesus offers. And that's what he's doing. I, like, and, and notice how he says this. Whoever believes in me, We've seen this, this woven theme throughout the last several chapters. In fact, the whole book of John, where it's saying, I need you to believe in me, not just in, the, in some like magic trick that I can do, walking on water or water into wine or feeding the 5,000 or whatever it is. Believe that I really am this long-promised Messiah that you have been waiting for. I am here. Believe in me. 
And in the same way that the principal tension of the people of Israel uh, as they're wandering around in the desert was whether or not they actually believed that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he promised he would. In the same way, Jesus is saying, that's all you got to do. Believe that he promised that the Messiah was coming and believe that he has made good on that promise. I'm here. Believe in me. I am the one that offers living water. And that's what Jesus is doing here, right in the middle of Sukkot, when they are thinking about all of these things, and this is what's on their mind, because all of Scripture points to Jesus. Now, there is something that's really neat. I mean, I could spend a lot more time drawing a lot of different connections here, but I want you to think just for a minute about this idea of God being the rock from which this living water, this sustaining, life-saving water comes from, just like the people in the desert. And Jesus' claim here that he is God, he is the rock, in all of the ways that we've been seen, the rock on which I stand, our firm foundation. Think of another time later on in the book of John when that rock is struck and out comes living water and out comes blood and water. Jesus on the cross, just like the scripture said, in fact, John says, in order to fulfill what the prophet had said, Jesus is pierced on the cross and outflows blood and water. And for those that can look on him and really believe that that blood is the living water that God provides, to them, they are made right with God. How cool is that? Jesus is this living water. And there's this wonderful beauty in all of Scripture pointing to this moment. And all of Scripture points to Jesus. And just in case we're not quite sure about that connection, Paul is helpful in his kind of outlining it. When he writes to the church in Corinth, he's pretty explicit on this point. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually, I have part of the verse here. I want to read more than what I have. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 10. He's talking about wandering in the desert. So, uh, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, And the rock was Christ. Paul himself is outlining. Paul himself is looking back in hindsight and saying, don't you see, God was showing us all along what he was doing. And the rock that sustained them thousands of years, hundreds of years before Jesus came in the flesh, that rock was Jesus. And here now, Jesus is standing up and saying, it's me, guys, because all of Scripture points to Jesus. Well, so what? What do we do with this? And I struggle a little bit sometimes thinking about 
Um, I, I, I mean, I can really go into a spiral and nerd out and do a deep dive and be looking at third century BC Mishnah texts that give instruction about Sukkot. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting, but I always have to come back to, so what? Why does this matter for us today? How do we live differently this week because of the truth of God's word that he is revealing to us, not just in John chapter 7, but in all of scripture, because all of scripture points to Jesus. The first thing that I want to say is, in this, in Jesus saying, it's me, I am this living water, we can take all of, all of the so what that I gave you last week, it applies this week too. Last week we talked about how Jesus is the only one who satisfies. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he makes this analogy to the manna that was given to the people wandering in the wilderness. All of the same thing. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. Jesus is the only one who offers living water. Jesus is the only one who can offer you something that will not leave you hollow or thirsting or wanting more or disappointed. Jesus is the only one who satisfies. So all of that same stuff. But also part of this kind of bigger goal that I want for us is that all of Scripture points to Jesus. It doesn't just start in the Gospels. I hope, my prayer for you, is that you would read all of it and see Jesus on every page. That you would see God's beautiful, masterful plan unfolded in every page of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I pray that you would have a deep and abiding love for getting into God's word, that you would do it with joy because you're discovering your father, you're discovering your creator, you're discovering the one who made you and wants to have a relationship with you on every single page. I also hope that it, it increases your confidence in the unity and the beauty and the reliability of God's word. And I, you know, I, I know that not everyone is persuaded um, cerebrally and intellectually in the same way, and not everyone kind of goes to the same place with apologetics and things like that. But I hope that this does at least give you confidence to answer some questions that friends or neighbors or unbelieving uh, you know, family members or whoever it, it might be in your life might have when they say, well, yeah, but the Bible is so disconnected. The Bible is just a bunch of different books. Yeah, kind of, but it's also one big story. It is one big book that all of it points to Jesus. It is one big unifying theme telling us who God is and his great love for us and his plan to redeem us to himself through Jesus. That's why all of it points to him. And I hope that it gives you confidence to answer those questions. I hope that it changes your perspectives and it gives you a lens to read even difficult books. Even as you read through Leviticus, you go, okay, where is Jesus in this? How is this preparing Israel to expect their Messiah? And how do I see that worked out and have confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised? And that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And all of Jesus' promises 
to never leave us nor forsake us, that he is coming again, that he has given us a helper, namely God's spirit himself, to live inside of us, that you would have confidence to believe in all of those things because they are all true, because all of scripture points to Jesus. And there is something in the way that Jesus teaches that, that's really difficult for the people hearing it to understand, to hear, to accept. And we even see after this, there's more quarreling, there's more people going, is he really the Christ? Is he not the Christ? I'm not sure. And the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders, they send these officials, they send law enforcement to arrest him, and they don't do it. The, the officials are, are, you know, they, they get caught up in listening to Jesus' teaching, and they come afterwards, and they're like, why didn't you arrest him? And they're like, no one ever taught us this before. No one, no one ever said things that this guy says. I, I don't know, maybe he is the Christ. And these officials are doing the very thing that Jesus is inviting us to do throughout the whole of John's gospel. Come and see. Set aside your expectations about what the Christ is supposed to look like, where he's supposed to come from, what kind of horse he's supposed to ride in on, or how he's going to show up. In fact, set aside all of your weighted expectations and assumptions and just come and experience Jesus on his terms. And I hope that you are doing that as you read through. And if you're not reading through John with us, please do. It's posted on our website. We've got a reading plan. We're reading through John chapter 7 and 8 this week. And I commend it to you just to come and see. Come and experience Jesus on his terms and set aside any assumptions that we might have, knowing all of Scripture points to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for not leaving us confused and dumbfounded, trying to discern your will, trying to figure out how it is we can please uh, some angry and wrathful God we serve, but instead, God, through your grace and compassion and your mercy, abounding in steadfast love, you have given us your word. You have given us all of these hundreds of years of prophets and stories telling the story of who you are. Not only that, but you have given us your word, your son, Jesus, in whom there is life. And I pray that we would come and experience the living water that only he offers, that we would come and drink and thirst no more, that we might experience life abundant in you. And we pray it all because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross, and in his name. Amen. <laughs>